Jeff Snyder is in his element in episode 60, in which he observes the 20th anniversary of quantitative easing and notes the unsettling twist in oil futures. Also, he reacts to the Federal Reserve Chairman who recently likened the Fed's actions last year to the heroic Dunkirk evacuation. Your podcaster, on the other hand, comes out of the gate staggering by slandering everyone's favorite nation, New Zealand, operating under the false impression that The Hobbit was a documentary. This podcaster opens this show asserting that New Zealand is home to all manner of fantastic creatures like the platypus, narwhal, orcs, and elves. The YouTube comments were aflame with polite indignation. The narwhal belongs to the Arctic, not Antarctic. Worse yet, the platypus is endemic to the only country in the world that doesn't care for New Zealand. Australia. To make amends, this podcaster watched BBC Planet Earth with New Zealand's fourth most popular guitar-based digibongo acapella rap funk comedy folk duo, Brett McKenzie and Jermaine Clement. So, dear audience, please squint your ears at the start of this episode. When you hear platypus, receive Fjordland Crested Penguin which is twice the size of a normal-sized man. When you hear narwhal, instead pick up kakapo, a parrot that identifies as an owl. When you hear orcs, perceive kiwi, like the bald eagle, but flightless and with fur. And when you hear elves, glean weka, another flightless bird with the legs of a witch, a taste for pickled olives, and a cholesterol problem. Welcome to a very special commemorative edition of Making Sense, where we're going to observe the 20th anniversary of quantitative easing. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, two decades ago this week, it was first released from its academic cage, that monetary experiment. It was loosed on the world, and it's been roaming the planet ever since. And we're going to track it down. It was last reported in that wonderful, magical land of New Zealand, everyone's favorite country, a land of mystical animals like the platypus, the narwhal, orcs and elves and quantitative easing. And our tracker, our tracker is going to be the renowned head of global research, Jeff Snyder. Welcome. Did I even mention Alhambra Investments? The head of global research for Alhambra Investments, Jeff Snyder. Jeff, very exciting. This week is full of anniversaries, uh, Jerome Powell. Yeah, yeah, go on. I'm not sure I would say excited, and I'm glad you didn't use the word celebrate as far as the anniversary. It's sort of like the 20th, the marking 20 years since a cancer or virus was let loose upon the world. And that's really what quantitative easing has been. It's been an experiment, but more like Frankenstein's monster than any kind of, you know, uh, wonder drug or uh, palliative cure. It, it's been. And the thing is, as you as you pointed out, it's gotten to the point where it's everywhere. Even New Zealand, New Zealand cannot escape the ravages of quantitative easing. And the reason why it's such a, in, at least in our estimation, a negative uh, negative factor or a negative event, is simply because it it, it not that it destroys on its own, but it prevents uh, the the world and people around the world from understanding what's really going wrong and then finding a solution. So it's basically this enormous time waster, which is why we're quote unquote celebrating or at least acknowledging 20 years have been squandered under a program that its own designers and cheerleaders say doesn't really work. Well, what do they tell us that what is it supposed to do? What is any large scale asset program supposed to do? And then we'll talk about what actually happens. Yeah, what it's supposed to do, there's three major effects. And we've talked about this before. The first is portfolio effects, which is they buy bonds from banks and the banks are supposed to go out and buy risky assets with it, including lending. They're supposed to lend. If I buy a government bond from you, go out and lend. We're not going to focus on that one so much. The second channel is, we'll talk about quite a bit, signaling, which is, hey, 
I'm a central bank. You think I print money. I'm doing something. Therefore, you believe I've just printed money. That's accommodative. It ha makes you happy. You start spending and hiring and investing and all these good, good, positive economic virtues take place. And the third channel is the, probably the easiest, most intuitive to understand. And therefore, the, what's probably the least controversial in the mainstream estimation, but probably should be the most controversial because it's, it's sort of disproves the entire thesis is that it lowers interest rates. And that makes sense too. I mean, look, central bank is buying bonds, bidding up their price, price goes up, interest rates go down, lower interest rates means it's cheaper to borrow, therefore accommodative. I mean, it all sounds so perfect, neat, simple, tidy package. How could it possibly be wrong? That's right. That's what New Zealand's, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand said when explaining what a large scale asset purchase program is. And it said, quote, this has the effect of lowering the tide on other interest rates in the economy, particularly longer term interest rates or two years or more. It also reduces the cost of borrowing for households and businesses. And they say that it underpins economic growth and inflation. And they also give an explanation of what an estimate is of what that impact is. But before we get to what the estimated impact of QE is on long-term interest rates. Jeff, why are we talking about New Zealand? It's a beautiful place. It's, it's as if like Norway and Iceland had a baby. That New Zealand is the result. It's got these fjords, it's an island. Amazing, everyone loves it. So why are we, but no one, you know, we don't think of the, the New Zealand as being the hub of monetary uh, excitement. Why is New Zealand in the news? Well. I for people who pay attention to these things, the, the sad, lonely people like myself, <laughs> New Zealand had a sort of busted QE program or QE operation earlier this week, which was they wanted to buy 120 million New Zealand dollars worth of government bonds. I believe they got submitted bids of only 92, of which 50 some odd were accepted. So less than half the bonds they intended to buy from the banking system on the islands were actually sold by the banks because the banks preferred to hold on to the bonds rather than sell them to the central bank. And the reason was because, as we see quite often during these QE programs, interest rates were not rising, interest rates were falling. In fact, they fell sharply during this, this busted QE period over the last couple of weeks. So here we have banks buying and holding on to bonds again, and not in this case, not wishing to sell them to the central bank, leading to a shortfall in their program. Is that unusual? Has that happened before in the uh, advanced economy world, these kind of busted QEs? It is unusual, it's highly unusual, but it has happened. So it's not something that's earth shattering or completely unprecedented, but it, it's, it's another, another, you know, another uh, key indication of what's really going on with these QE programs. Buying bonds, lowering interest rates, stimulating the economy. Is that really what happens here? And when you start looking down that road and they start examining down the rabbit hole of what actually happens during quantitative easing, not just in New Zealand, but everywhere it's practiced, what you find is, wait a minute, interest rates are already usually falling in a longer term or intermediate term sense. And so here comes the central bank co coming in after rates are falling, saying, well, we made rates fall a little bit more. Well, I'm going to reference New Zealand's conclusion, or at least their explanation of what studies have found. Studies found the government bond purchases, so QE, worth 10% of GDP have, on average, lowered the 10-year government bond yield by around 50 basis points. And in this article here that I'm referencing, that's called the article is called Kiwi Busted Kiwi and its relation to the reflation story. And it was posted at Alhambra Investments on March 24th, 2021. And Jeff, I'm no expert at this, but as I was reading that, I was thinking, I don't know, you know, that doesn't, that seems like a lot of effort, 10% of GDP and 50 basis points. And that's exactly the point you made right after that quote is, Where's it's really beef? underwhelming, isn't it? I mean, 10% of a, Q, a QE or LSAP that's 10% of GDP is enormous. In the United States, we're talking multi-trillion. Mm -hmm. That's what 10% of GDP. And the result of that is you lower interest rates by 50 basis points, half a percent. 
for 10% of G. I mean, it's entirely, completely underwhelming. And it's even arguable that it's 50 basis points as attributable to QE. But even let's assume that it is. Go back to look look at the US Treasury yield yield history over the last decade since or plus uh, 12 years since QE was implemented. Interest rates have fallen by a lot more than half a percent. So if we're saying that two trillion in QE gave us 50 basis points of three and a three and a half percent since rates have fallen since you know going back to 2007, that means the market, the market dropped interest rates by a ton more than central bank buying ever even thought of. And so again, we're getting back to the question: what is it that QE actually does? And if you go into the literature, even to the beginnings, the origins of QE, it's not at all what you think. It's not what it's supposed to be. And in fact, when you go, when you review the literature and you review the transcripts and the discussions about quantitative easing, what you see is this thing is just kind of a made-up smoke and mirrors. Let's just call it call it something and hope that people buy it. Let's go back in time. So the busted QE that we just auction that we saw in New Zealand was was the the reserve bank saying here take our cash and the private banking system saying no we don't want your cash that's very unusual we want the collateral well if we go back 20 years we hear that again about the cash the money printing here's a quote that you pulled from CNN on QE's very first day 20 years ago and here's what CNN here's how they explained it the Bank of Japan's move injects a large amount of money into the Japanese economy. Great. Known as quantitative easing. And then you say the media still writes the same thing. Darn. Oh, boy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was a fire alarm that went off. Uh, I don't know who's trying to keep us off the air, but they're not going to be able to do it. We're going to give you the truth. Here it is. No fire alarm is going to stop us. So CNN, 20 years ago, it was money printing, they said. Here it is. The Bank of Japan's move injects a large amount of money into the Japanese economy, known as quantitative easing. Well, the media still says that. They still say it's a, lot of, a large amount of money. And who turned down money? Injected into the economy, right? I mean, I think that's the key word. And that's, it's, you know, as I said, I think both parts of that 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 uh, phrasing is wrong. It's not money, it's bank reserves. And the second part, maybe more important, is does it actually get into the economy? When you go back to the early, early days of QE, what the Bank of Japan was debating when trying to come up with what would quantitative easing look like, they had the same sort of discussion, which was, is it really money? And are we injected into the real economy? Because that's really the point here. That's what Milton Friedman said. I think we talked about this a long time ago, you and I, Emil, where he said Milton Friedman came up, sort of came up with the idea for quantitative easing when he said the bank, central bank should be buying bonds, creating reserves, which he called high-powered money. Therefore, high-powered money gets into the real economy. Yet the Japanese, after their, their experience of the lost decade, were saying, there's something else going on here. First of all, we know bank reserves themselves may not necessarily be money because for the last 20 some odd years, we've had a lot of trouble figuring out what money actually is. And because of the lost decade in Japan, because it had this, you know, this plague of zombie banks, quote unquote, during that period, as, uh, as I think it was Iko Shinitsuka had said, and when she voted to uh, she voted against quantitative easing that first time around. She said, look, why are we doing quantity of money since we don't do quantity of money anymore? The relationship between monetary statistics and real economic variables, as Alan Greenspan had pointed out throughout the 90s, had broken down a very long time before. So why would the Bank of Japan, knowing full well that quantity theory doesn't work, why are we going back to quantity theory? In fact, she based her dissent against quantitative easing in March of 2001 on that fact, that they had no, not enough discussion about the, the idea that here we're going, in, going back into a quantitative target when for a long time before then it had become settled policy proposition that you don't do quantity of money because you can't. That's right. Eiko Shinsotsoka. I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing it, but she voted against it, as you tell us here. And there were nine board members, right? 
and eight voted for it and she stood alone and she said no. And did she also vote against zero interest rate policy a couple years earlier, Jeff, is that right? Yeah, she was a, a well-known dissenter for various reasons. And I actually wanted to talk a little bit more about her and the article didn't have a chance and, and how her, how she and Richard Fisher of the Dallas Fed were actually very similar in their outlooks and their viewpoints and how it was interesting how she came to object to QE in sort of the same way that Richard Fisher had many years later in the United States saying, why are we buying bonds? The market is already buying. And it's funny how they come back, they come at that from a very different position you know, sort of being loan dissenters and end up arriving at the truth almost by accident. And so for, for, for Aiko Shinosuka, what she was saying is, you know, why are we doing this? Because we've said for years, we can't, why are we even thinking about doing this? And we're not discussing enough about this quantitative theory of money that has in, in central banking uh, uh, regimes throughout the world been completely, totally upended for many, many years. Well, Jeff, I encourage you to write about it next week. I'd love to learn more about her. You know, when I was reading this, tell me if I have this right. I believe it was Sheila Blair in the United States in the early 2000s, late 90s, that was going against the tide, against Greenspan, against Larry Summers and Robert Rubin, who wanted to loosen up the regulations. And she made some points and she was moved aside and ignored. And I think in retrospect, I think it would have been better to listen to some of her points like with uh like we have here in japan did i get that yeah. name right was it sheila blair sheila bear yeah and, and she was you know in a lot of different ways it's, that's how it be you know central banking monetary policy isn't a scientific process that it's made out to be in fact most of the time if somebody has an idea they draw it up on the blackboard spit it out in you know dsg models and monte carlo simulations and then it becomes a matter of groupthink everybody believes it because everybody believes it and nobody's allowed to challenge what becomes settled orthodoxy and so even before quantitative easing was a thing it had become a settled orthodoxy that look central banks need to be accommodative but we need to be clear even after 20 years of how is it that central banks claim they're being accommodative it's not by printing money as aiko shinotsuka said we don't do that quantitative theory doesn't work because we can't define money and we're not even talking about that fact. So getting back to the CNN quote, it's not money that they're injecting in the economy because they don't know what money is. It's, it's basically an accounting fiction of bank reserves. And so then the other question is how, if it was, how does it get into the real economy? Assuming, it, assuming bank reserves are money and useful and effective in any sort of way, how are they supposed to get from the central bank into the real economy? And the answer always is, the banking system. And so what she said, and others joined her in questioning this during their first debate, what they all said, what they all realized was that, look, if the banking system is not pliable in the way we hope it is, this is just all academic nonsense. And, now, and a good example of that is the amount they picked for their first quantitative easing. Tell us about what amount it is and how it speaks to the unscientific guessing nature of this uh, program, this experiment. Yeah, I no, look, they said, we're gonna do a trillion dollars. We're gonna target, the quantitative target of the first quantitative easing was to raise the level of bank reserves in the Japanese system from 4 trillion yen to 5 trillion. So it was an even 1 trillion. When you look at that and think, well, is that really precision? Is that really science? If you plug in a number, if you plug in, you know, a bunch of variables in a formula, is it going to spit out a round number like that? Or are they just kind of plucking a round number out of thin air and just saying, well, that's probably good enough? You know, it, it, it cuts against the entire idea of quantitative easing being quantitative in the scientific sense. You would think that if they were going to be quantitative about it, it would have been, you know, 1.2187632 trillion instead of an even number. But that's, you know, again, quantitative easing throughout its 20 years, it's two decades. It's always been like that. It's always a round number because there's nothing scientific about it. They're just they're just pulling numbers out of thin air and in, in trying to identify what are big enough numbers that it can influence expectations. 
Exactly. We're going to talk about expectations, that that was the real purpose behind QE and always has been. But let me just give a couple of numbers to the audience. So total reserves had been approximately 4.4 trillion in February of 2001. By the middle of 2004, that had expanded to 27 0.5 trillion. Did I say trillion the first time? 4.4 trillion to 27.5 trillion in the middle of 2004. And here is the damning part, and it echoes what we were discussing not too long ago with the 1930s in America. Total bank lending during those years dropped by more than 10% regardless. If you, if you have any comment on that, uh, let's talk about it. If not, we can move on to the the expectations, the emotional, the forward guidance, the moral suasion, that's the real purpose of this quantitative well, but, yeah, Before easing. we get to that, though, I think I want to go back and highlight and really, really go over that point, which was that even back in March of 2001, when they're talking about quantitative easing, the uh, policymakers in Japan knew that the sticking point was the banking system. So if we're going back to our original CNN formulation, money gets into the real economy, it has to go through banks to, be, to get there, right? And so if the banking system says, I don't care how many bank reserves you give us, we're not going to lend, we're not going to create credit, then it doesn't matter, right? That's the, that's the whole point. And in fact, they knew that going in. Uh, one of the quotes I pulled from the minutes of the, the March 2001 meeting in the Bank of Japan meeting, it said, many members pointed out that the effectiveness of monetary policy was being undermined by the fact that the credit creating function of financial institutions was not operating sufficiently. And as the this, this, this statistics you just pointed to, Emil, show, it didn't matter if they did quantitative easing or not. They did, you know, 20 some trillion in bank reserves in a relatively short period of time, just a couple of years, and lending fell by another 10%. While at the same time, Japanese government bond yields were basically steady at very, very low rates. So there was enormous demand, even though the, the, uh, fiscal, the, the fiscal authorities in Japan were issuing debt, enormous demand for safe liquid instruments, no demand for lending, even though the, the uh, Bank of Japan undertook massive quantitative easing, or at least what they said was massive quantitative easing. So there's not, nothing monetary and it doesn't get into the real economy. Yet 20 years later, that's how it's always talked about. Money printing that gets poured into the real economy. Now, Jeff, here you say that they were concerned about non-performing loans and that those had to be fixed. But then you say it wasn't non-performing loans after all. Let me ask you a question, a little bit of a detour off our script here. Uh, at that almost exact same time in China, right across the street, they had a similar idea, similar program. They had tremendous non-performing loans. Uh, it was estimated that perhaps up to 40% of the bank's books were non-performing. And so they took those, they tried to, they tried to, in the first couple of years, it wasn't so successful. They took those non-performing loans and wanted to put them into four asset management companies. And seemingly that was successful eventually, while in Japan it wasn't. I'm wondering, Jeff, was it really successful because of what China was doing, that they had a different policy, different idea than what Japan did? Or was it the fact that the euro dollar system took off and money began to pour into China, but not Japan? And that washed away some of the problems. I'm just guessing. What do you think? What was no, the I think you have it exactly right. In fact, Japan played a central role in all of that, especially as Japanese banks decided they wanted to get into the euro dollar business, getting more involved in the euro dollar business as well. So they were busy diverting dollars into China at the same time they were looking at the Japanese economy and their own Japanese loan books and saying, we don't want to participate in it no matter what the Bank of Japan does. Because we live in the euro dollars world, it doesn't matter what central banks do. It only matters what banks do in the euro dollar system. So in terms of what's, what would happen in Japan, it wasn't, a non, it wasn't an NPL problem. It was an unstable yen problem. The fact that the yen was no longer viewed, in this, uh, at least in the same way as it had before the 1990 collapse. And therefore, the banking system said, we're, we're just not going to participate in yen finance, except for borrowing and buying and collateralizing the safest, most liquid yen instruments, these JGBs. Hmm. Let's talk about what the 
re, I don't want to say real because that sounds conspiratorial, but the more, I don't know, what, how would you put it, Jeff? What was the, the reason that they were doing quantitative easing in Japan? They wanted to show- The true the, intent. The true the, intent yeah, is to show- it's really the signaling expectations channel, which is that, look, we don't do money because we can't, which is what Aiko Shinotsuka was pointing out. We don't actually do that. So what do we do? Well, we get people to believe we do. They look and they say, well, that central bank is doing something. Therefore, it must be accommodative and helpful or whatever. And what central banks had done up until that point was whenever they wanted to be accommodative, whenever they wanted to signal easing, they would lower a short-term money rate. They would reduce their, their interest rate target. But Japan had done that all the way down to the zero lower bound by the end of the 1990s. So what they realized is that we can't cut rates anymore. We can't do something, at least not the same thing, not the same something that we have done before. So they had to do something else to show people they're doing something. And that was to buy bonds. But the problem, another part of the discussion was that they already bought bonds. <laughs> and so they couldn't just buy government bonds and say, well, we're buying more government bonds because that wouldn't be a powerful enough signal. So they said, we, in order to make this a powerful signal to get out of this deflationary trap we can't seem to get out of, we need to do something big and awesome and, and, and radical. And that was to target a level of, of bank reserves, as we said, and to target a big enough level of bank reserves that it would signal to the Japanese public, to Japanese businesses, that the central bank wasn't out of accommodating businesses. It was, in fact, going, in, going beyond all sorts of uh, prior established or traditional boundaries, money printing in popular imagination in order to accommodate, ease, whatever you want to call it. And now that same belief is in New Zealand, is that right? You know, they want to show that they're doing something, but the banking system's not really buying it. They're saying, we're going to hold on to this collateral because things seem to be turning the wrong way. Jeff, is there anything that we haven't covered from your Real Clear Markets essay, by the way? That's what it was posted today on the 26th of March. It's called Central Banks Do Not Do Quantities of Money Because they can't. Is there anything that we didn't cover in this essay? Yeah, I think I want to point out one more thing and yet, you know, emphasize yet again is that central banks don't believe this works either. And that's really the point here is that, you know, 20 years of this and quantitative easing is everywhere. And you think, well, it must be everywhere because it works really well, right? I mean, that's why everybody else has adopted it. But if you really realize what the what was going on in March 2001 with the Bank of Japan discussion, the reason they adopted quantitative easing is they didn't have anything else they could come up with. They were so desperate, they decided, well, we need to signal to the public, let's just pretend we're money printing and hope everybody just follows along. That's honestly what they actually decided to do. They had no other ideas except to try this one thing, which wasn't money printing. It doesn't get into the real economy without the banking system, but yet they had no other options. And so I think there's this, this popular imagination that quantitative easing is money printing, it is a comedy, and it is this very successful. But yet when you go back and you look at 20 years of scholarship, academic research, central bank reviews, they are unequivocal. The best that they can say about quantitative easing, as we, were, as we said earlier with New Zealand's view, is that maybe it lowered interest rates by a little bit more then the market had already lowered interest rates. If that's the best that you can say about quantitative easing, it doesn't work. And I want to pull, I, I want to highlight a quote I pulled from one such study. I mean, there's dozens of these. This one was from the IMF back in 2012. Research on the effectiveness of earlier quantitative easing has yielded mixed results, to put it, to put it you know, most kindly, with most pointing to limited effects on economic activity. While most papers found evidence that quantitative easing helped reduce yields, as we said, a little bit, its effect on economic activity and inflation was found to be small. Here's the money quote. The reasons cited included a dysfunctional banking sector. So the most that we can ever say about QE is that it helps reduce yields, which is weird because, as we note, all over the place and whenever quantitative easing is actually implemented, yields are already falling and they fall by a substantially larger amount because of what the market is doing than what central banks are doing. So you have to ask, I mean, 
if the, if interest rates are already falling because things are bad enough to begin with, how does it become good that the central bank might make rates fall a little bit lower than they already might than they already were? It, it doesn't just it, it it it's it's not just illogical. It doesn't even make sense on its in its own way. Yeah, powerful, damning, heartbreaking. I don't know how to end it, Jeff. I hope that somebody one well, day I think, in you charge. Know, the reason why quantitative easing has proliferated in the way inflation obviously hasn't and economic recoveries obviously haven't is because they know economic recoveries haven't come about and they don't have anything else. Their only other option, and they, I'm talking about central bank and monetary authorities, their only other option is to admit the truth, which is what Aiko Shinotsuka had said 20 years ago. We don't do money. And so it's an option of keeping up the pretense, keeping up the smoke and mirrors and the CNN articles talking about trillions pouring into real economy in the hopes that one of these days, maybe it will just magically work. Because after 20 years, the research, the academic, the evidence, all of it has shown conclusively it doesn't. The ongoing labor struggles will hopefully inspire the people in democracies to force their politicians to hold central bankers to account. Uh, that's what I've been keeping my hopes on, but it's been a number of years. Jeff, powerful stuff. Thank you. The oil market, very critical, of course, to telling us which direction the global economy is heading. And in late February, a corner of the oil market, not the nominal headline price that we all see, but kind of some part in the shadow that we don't usually read about in our financial press peaked and has been turning the wrong way ever since. And Jeff, you're going to help us explain, understand and learn what is happening in the oil market and what it might mean or suggest about the direction of the global economy. The article you wrote, we're going to go over two of them. The first one is posted on the 18th of March and it's called OK NYMEX, Go On. And it's at Alhambra Investments. And on that particular day, Jeff, you were talking about the front month of WTI, West Texas Intermediate Futures, and that they had plummeted just under 8%. And you brought up something called Contango. So help us understand, what were you looking at? Well, as I say often, not just about the crude future, the WTI futures curve, but many money curves and yield curve itself, it's as, it is, uh, as important as nominal levels are, often the curve shape is more important or you know, it's something you should focus on and be aware of. And in the crude, crude oil market or the energy market, what we want to see with a balanced market or a reflationary market move that's a sustainably reflationary market, we would like to see the crude oil, the, free, the futures curve for crude oil be in backwardation, which is that the, the nearer term contracts are trading at a higher price then contracts further and out into the future, because that's a disincentive for economic participants, real economic participants, including speculators, to store oil. We want oil to be flowing, continuously flowing into economy because it's healthy, it's moving, it's robust, it's growing, it's full of life and energy and activity. And therefore, it requires a lot of oil to be pulled out of the ground, transit through pipelines, maybe temporarily stored and then moved right into the real economy through refineries, distillates and all those other things. So we want to see backwardation in the crude curve because that suggests a healthy, a healthy balance between all three of the factors that are really intersecting at oil. It's not just physical supply and physical demand, but also money demand and money supply. So you have money supply, physical demand, all these things coming at, coming at us and working out into what we hope to be a nice downward sloping, very steeply downward sloping uh, backwardation in the, in the futures curve. You show on this article, you show us a nice graph that shows this transformation from late last year into more recent weeks and months. The transformation from contango, which is the opposite of what we were just describing, where the market says, don't bring us any oil, okay, store it. We don't need it right now, to backwardation. And it's while at the same time moving up in nominal price. But in this article, you mentioned mm, there's a little bit of a quirk in that very first front month. What's going on there? It seems to be turning the wrong way. Contango, it's saying, don't bring us oil right away. 
Wait a minute. Yeah, that's, I mean, from January forward, really, January and, and most of February, that was the reflect. I mean, not oil prices all over the curve were, were, were moving higher, but they were moving the highest or the fastest and the farthest at the front end, which really steepened the backwardation, which, we, I mean, that's a beautiful thing. That's a positive, optimistic. We think the, the, the oil part of the economy is looking really good and healthy kind of a thing. But then in February, in late February, we started to see the curve change shape a little bit which was, first of all, while it was still rising, oil prices were still rising nominally, the entire curve was shifting nominally. It wasn't shifting nominally. It wasn't shifting higher in the same way it had before. Some of that backwardation started to get, get moved out. And then at the very front of the curve between the first and second month's contract, so the front month contract and the one month further down the road, it started to flatten out and even come into a little bit of a couple of pennies worth of contango which by itself is, it's not, it's not earth shattering. It's not, it's not a huge deal, but it's enough. And it's odd enough that you see, when you see something like that, you think, okay, this is something we should pay attention to. Is the curve shape in, in, is something happening in the, in the crude oil market that's potentially shifting perceptions, at least at the short run, that could then become something more than that, where we see things move at the long run and maybe even go even further than that. And what the, the front month can tango, it could be a couple of different things. It could just be, you know, as that front month heads toward expiration, it becomes less and less liquid. And there's there's some technical issues there. And so it was interesting to see the contango survive the, I believe it was the April contract going off the board. And now the May contract is the front month. And yet that front month contango, it's not there today, but it has been there up until today. It's been a couple pennies too. So flattening out the front month, is that just maybe, is there technical issues there? Or is the entire crude curve starting to suggest looking at the world very differently than it had been in January and February? And then you came back to the issue. You wrote about that on the 18th. Then on the 23rd, five days later, you came back to it, a new article. Okay, NYMEX, beginning to notice the fine print. And there you talk about that maybe there was a technical factor in the, in the front month there with the April contract expiring. But you... What you said is what really got your attention is that now the, the backwardation was evaporating, just how fast it was being drained out of the whole curve. And you were concerned that that might be telling us something. Yeah, so we went past the just the front month contango, which was as the April contract went off the board uh, earlier this week on Monday. Now we have the May contract in the front. Yes, it was lower than the price of the June contract. So the contango, first of all, that front month contango survived the shift uh, in, in front month contracts. But over those really was uh, those couple of days where oil was down big, what we'd, we'd seen is that it was down huge at the front which was the opposite of what had happened in January and February, where it was up big at the front, which steepened the backwardation. So the opposite of steepening backwardation is flattening, not into contango, but toward contango. And the level was really pretty severe because if you looked at, uh, I think it was the, the calendar spread out to December, it was cut by more than half from $4 and something down less than $2. And that was just in the space of a week. And if you looked at the, the calendar spread out to the June 2022 contract, it was even more. It was from like $7, which was, again, beautifully steep backwardation down to less than four, which is you have to wonder what is going on in the oil market. What is NYMEX trying to tell us? Now, it could be this is just a short term fluctuation. I mean, profit taking after an enormous run up in oil prices wouldn't be out of line at all, wouldn't be out of character. But with the, that, these kinds of different changes or twisting and shapes of the curve, it seems like there's potential for a more robust and maybe even more meaningful shift in the oil market. And you bring up a couple of items in this article here that suggest to you maybe there's more to it because it's not just the oil market in the 24th and the 25th, but uh, New Zealand's currency, the Chinese currency, um, what other, the activity index that was being reported out of Chicago, there are some economic and financial markers that all seem to be inflecting around that time, corroborating what we're seeing in oil. There's Caution. also, you know, the bigger picture too, what was largely behind the run-up in oil prices was essentially a promise of a much better future. It wasn't present tense, it was always future tense, right? The combination of vaccines, plus government largesse was going to contribute to 
a pathway toward normalcy. We didn't see it in the, in the data, certainly in January and February. In fact, it was the exact opposite. As you just referenced, the Chicago Fed National Activity Index plummeted down to minus 1.09 in February, which is deeply recessionary. That's a deep recessionary signal. That's not, you know, it was blamed on cold weather in Texas and, the shut, and all that kind of the power disruptions and things there. But you don't see minus 1.09 due to cold weather. So there's, there's concerns about today that are not being completely erased by vaccines and government spending. And I think that's really the point here over the last week or so, the latest government helicopter drop has taken place. That money is already hitting the economy. So at least it's supposedly hitting the economy. And here you have a lot of signals around the world, all this promise of good things to come. And yet there's still enormous doubts as to whether or not these things will actually end up contributing in the way that they're supposed to. And so maybe that's what the oil curve looking out is signaling. You know, when we start to look forward five, six, seven months, maybe into next year, and the backwardation starts to slide toward contango, you think, is the oil market starting to, to reevaluate the promise of vaccines and stimulus and say, I'm not as reassured as I was a couple weeks ago? Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover in these oil market-focused articles that you wanted to bring up before we move on to part three of the show? It's, it, the review is really about curve shape because there's so much that we can learn from the shape of the, you know, contango and backwardation and commodity curves and then steepness and, and, and uh, inversion and other types of curve. You know, we talked about before the tips curve, which is inverted in its own way, which is that inflation expectations are far higher in the short run, consistent with that run up in oil prices and copper and other things that have, that have gone higher over the last couple of months. But yet you go further out in time, the market is saying, we're not so sure that that you know, short run inflationary constraints and pressures are going to last all that long or leave much of an impact on the long run. In fact, you get to the furthest out in inflation expectations, the long run five-year, five-year forward rate, it has barely moved much at all over the last couple of months, which is the market saying, we see all of these positives, you know, vaccines, government spending, QE to the moon, all these things around the world, and we're not convinced it's actually going to change anything from the long run trajectory, which up until last year hadn't been very good at all. So as we talked about with, you know, the Paul Krugman article, once we get past all this government stuff and COVID and vaccines, what does the world actually look like? in late 2021 or going into 2022. And we have all of these market signals that had been very positive, now starting to look at reevaluate potentially and say, maybe it's not as good as positive and perfect as we had hoped. And we can look to Japan with our review of the last 20 years of QE. The market's looking to this experiment having been perpetrated and perpetuated worldwide over and over and the same results. So that's why we're not expecting more than a mild reflation, I would expect. Well, Jeff, thank you very much. Let's move on to part three. Was last month's Fedwire break a coincidence? Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Partners, helped me understand what is this article about March 26, 2021, Alhambra Investments. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Battle of Dunkirk during World War II. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's well, not in I your think title. It, I don't know how those two things tie together. Well, I think it's it. Jay Powell decided he was going to give an interview earlier this week on National Public Radio, and decided that you know it, a retrospective of what had happened last year in March of 2020, and the Fed acted heroically and saved the system from from itself from its own worst worst designs and then without the federal reserve sort of like the battle of dunkirk where the british nation got in all their, their you know these little tiny yachts and boats and rescued the british expeditionary force or what was left of it from the beaches of dunkirk saving the british army for a later fight against nazi fascism and so jay's analogy was the federal reserve was something similar the world was going completely wrong and awry and they, thank God Jay Powell was there to rescue the system before it completely collapsed into whatever singularity he has in mind for what, what, what happens without quantitative easing. Well, let me read to you how Mr. Powell was introduced on National Public Radio by Steve Inskeep. Here it is. 
Jerome Powell is on the line. He is the chair of the Federal Reserve Board charged with helping to manage the world's largest economy. One year ago, the Fed was effectively printing enormous amounts of money, unprecedented amounts, creating trillions of dollars to help avoid economic collapse in the early stages of the pandemic. Did the Federal, chair, the Federal Reserve Chair correct Mr. Inskeep? Yeah, there's that lie again, right? Flooding the world, what, what money us. pouring into the real economy. It's, it's the same thing that's been, the same lie that's been repeated in the media since quantitative easing began 20 years ago. And Jay Powell knows it's not true, but yet he didn't, he didn't you know, I mean, he went on 60 Minutes in May of last year and basically said the thing, the, outright stated it for himself. They flooded the world with digital dollars, which just isn't true. And he knows it's not true, but he needs everybody else to believe it's true because that's what quantitative easing really is. It's about signaling and expectations and things like that. And that's why he came on and talked about Dunkirk was because Powell was trying to say, after we flooded the world, we, that's how we sit, that's the boats. That was the rescue. You know, it, it's, if we hadn't flooded the world with dollars, it, the world would, it would have been a much, much worse fate. Here's what Mr. Powell said. And we knew that in hindsight we would, there would be learning that we would get that we could, no, I'm reading, what is happening here? And we knew that in hindsight we would, there would be learning that we would get that we could do things better. But I think that strategy, I liken it to Dunkirk, you know, when it was time to get in the boats and get the people, not to check the inspection records and things like that. Just get in the boats and go. And that's what we did. I think overall it was a very successful program. And I think history will treat it well. Maybe not even history. Let's not wait for history. Why don't we give the Federal Reserve the Central Bank of the Year Award? <laughs> yeah, Central Banking Magazine did that already. And I think, you know, look, the Dunkirk rescue was a historic success, but only because the Battle of Dunkirk was a historic failure. And so Jay Powell bringing up Dunkirk is actually a, a, a fitting analogy, but not for the reasons he actually believes. Jay wasn't part of the boats and you know the private British citizen rescuing the operation. Jay was a British general on the land losing the battle to begin with. I had a, 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 re, a reader email me a, actually the perfect summation of Jay's of Jay's uh, content that he was at, you know, that the Fed's operation was Dunkirk. You know, I totally agree, Jay. Just like Dunkirk, you didn't see it coming. You got your ass handed to you, and you're luckily you're lucky it didn't turn out worse. That absolutely describes the British leadership, the British and French leadership at the Battle of Dunkirk, leading up to the rescue, the evacuation, and it absolutely describes Jay Powell's Federal Reserve leading up to March 2020, especially the first half of March 2020 when things got all sorts of bad everywhere, including the treasury market that, that uh, experienced so much selling it couldn't absorb everything. And here's Jay trying to tell us the Fed did a good job. No, he was the one that led the system to disaster. I mean, we talked about this a number of times about quantitative, not QE uh, in, is from 2019 and 2020, buying up treasury bills, leaving the system short of collateral so that it, when it got to its moment of maximum pain, there was even fewer treasury bills available for the system to write itself. So, but, you know, Jay is trying to tell you, basically gaslight you into thinking that, hey, March 2020 was the Fed's finest hour, to borrow another World War II phrase, when it was anything but. But see, under an expectations policy, he, he has to sell you on that idea so that you believe in everything else the Fed was, is doing currently so that the, that the recovery can continue on its way. At the end of that section where you uh, introduced that quote to us from uh, a reader, you say that this ain't over. But then you explained that you're not referring that you expect another March 2020 calamity. So what is not over yet, Jeff? What are we going to face? The aftermath, the effects, the lingering, the problems, the continuous monetary drag that always, that always continues, that always keeps the, uh, ec the global economy from reaching its potential again. That's why we always see we have this, we have this event. It's a monetary event in nature. And then after the event, 
Curiously, unlike any other time in post-war history, we don't get a recovery. It always falls short. And that leads into all these other things that we've been talking about, you know, central bank's inflation puzzle. Why can the central bank never hit its inflation target? Well, it all, it all leads into these things together. Once you have that monetary break, you can't come back from it. We can never get back from it. And so when I say this ain't over, that's what I mean. That we've we've we experienced the the second monetary event of the last 20, 20 years or so, and now we expect that the economy will probably not perform as well as as everybody seems to think, including Mr. Powell. And Jeff, you said we experienced the second economic event of the last twenty years, and I think you, did you, I think you're referring to just the United States. Because if you look worldwide, it's two or three. If you're in Europe, this is your third one. If you're in China, this is your, I don't know, I guess you could say it's the second one as well. But there have been four total, two worldwide, and two in, uh, focused on Europe and one in China. Yeah, so, we bring up the, you know, if you talk about the second or the third of those, what we call Euro dollar two and Euro dollar number three, most people in America are like, what? What do you mm-hmm. mean? There was nothing. 2012, what was that? You know, 2011, 2015, I don't remember anything happening then. It was an oil supply glut, something like that, right? So from the people perspective of Americans, they really only understand euro dollar four and euro dollar number one. And you're right, in China, euro dollar number three or Brazil, emerging markets, the third one was the worst one. Um, so it's it's all of these these hidden anomalies or really what they what seem like anomalies that make it very difficult to put together a comprehensive story. And certainly it's not the one that Jay Powell is going to tell you when he keeps saying the Fed is this heroic actor saving the system time and time again, not already knowing that his audience is never going to question him about, wait a minute, why do you have to keep saving a system? You keep, you, we've, been, we've heard from since Ben Bernanke how everything is fine, the, the financial system is robust and resilient, Therefore, you would think it wouldn't require that much effort to keep it from destroying itself. And Jeff, you have noticed some anomalies materializing recently, and you list them here. Oil, the New Zealand dollar, the euro, the yuan, copper. Where? What else am I looking at here? You can help me. Uh, yeah, contango. The, Going back to the you know our oil discussion, there's contango a, in the WTI curve. There's a date that they're all related to. They all keep pointing back at February 25th, 24th, 25th. That those, those couple of days keep coming up. And it's, it's, it's in a pretty wide variety of data and prices and markets, which you start to think, well, what, what happened on May 24th and 25th? And if you think back to the 25th specifically, oh, yeah, that was the day the treasury market blew out. You know, the treasury market experienced a really severe bout of selling. You saw the five-year... Uh, U.S. Treasury, the yield spiked almost 20 basis points in a single day. It was a really bad day in the Treasury, you know, bond route, bloodbath, massacre, however you want to put it. You know, the coming of the inflationary monster finally being let loose. At least that's how it's commonly described. Jeff, you know what I'm very proud of? On the 1st of March, we released our episode number 52, Anomalies or Triggers. And that one was recorded on the 26th. It was just in the air. You know, there were things that were breaking at that time. And one of them was Fedwire, which is the title of your piece here. Now, Jeff, when you're looking at your charts and you notice, okay, the 24th in oil, the 25th in the New Zealand dollar, and then you look back in your notes and you go, oh, there's copper the 24th. Do you get a cold sweat when you look back at your notes and you realize that the Fedwire disruption happened on the 24th, 25th? I mean, does that, I mean, do you, are you like, oh, this is unbelievable or no, that's just me. No, because it's one of those things that, you know, you write down and say, okay, did this actually, as it happened, you don't know, was this a meaningful event or not? And in fact, that's what our discussion was on that, on the 26th, when we talked about it in the podcast was, is this one of those things that we have to put it right down in pencil and come back to and say, this was an important thing? Or is this going to be like the like when it happened in 1990, a complete trivial non-event that we for easily forget about? So for me, it's on my it's on my note sheet right next to my computer where it says, hey, February 24th, Fedwire. And so for the last month, it's been like, you know, going back and check, okay, 24th, Fedwire, are we still seeing the same thing? So it wasn't it wasn't much of a surprise 
But you know, after a month, we're starting to see all of these things happen in, mark, in markets, and the change in trend, at least a short run trend, all dates back to that. You start to you start to really wonder, did we actually see something significant? And I think it's worthwhile going back and, and repeating what happened on the 24th, which was that the Fedwire system, which is a, a key component of the global dollar, global US dollar um, settling system, the way that banks and financial firms and markets and exchanges all settle up on these trillions of trades and in, in the monetary transactions runs through a central Fedwire uh, access that for a couple hours that day on the 24th just shut down completely, shut down entirely for reasons that have never been fully explained. And when that had happened in the past, it causes a cascading effect where especially the banking system has to has to uh, work around what, what becomes almost like a bottleneck, a monetary bottleneck, a level of uncertainty because you can't, you aren't assured that you can clear trades you don't know how much money is going to be pulled from your balance sheet or how much money you're going to have left at, at the end of the day. And it can cause severe knock-on effects that, that really do alter behavior, alter mon uh, monetary type mechanics of these money dealers because they have to take into account, well, I just got, I just got hit with unexpected disruption that, causes, that can potentially cause something severe. Ladies and gentlemen, if you wanted to hear us discussing this in much greater detail, I recommend three episodes. Episode 47, when we discuss a disruption to interbank netting communications in November of 1985. Then in episode 50, we go back to the 1970s and discuss Herstat, Herstat risk and what, how would you describe it? That, uh, again, just interbank netting messaging. That, yeah, the 1974, really severe, caused major, major problems in the global dollar system. And that was the one that you to, to really pay attention to. And then episode 52. So three episodes about disruption to interbank netting, daylight overdrafts. And then, of course, we talked about it in awe oh, with Isabella Kaminska as well. What would episode was that? 58. So that was in part three with her, if I remember correctly. Yes, I think so. So, wow, we've been talking about it a lot, and it seems like it may be an important event in a few months when we look back. But we don't know yet, right, Jeff? So we seem to be, as we close out this episode, we seem to be at a point where the momentum has been meek, and now it's things are popping up on the radar screen that are suggesting slowing even further in the momentum inflection yeah. downward maybe we still have february 24th and fedwire written in pencil we don't know for sure that it's it's a you know this is not necessarily the you know inflection point but there you know one month later one month is a significant length of time though we're still in the short run we're starting to see higher dollar exchange value again yuan and euro going lower which are pretty key indications uh, we're seeing interest rates around the world stop rising in some places to go lower, like New Zealand, where co coincident to the New Zealand dollar. Again, we talked about oil and contango, copper, all sorts of things are at least at this point in the short term, pointing back to that Fedwire disruption, saying, "Okay, hold on a minute. Let's 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 see let's see what happens from here, because we don't really know if this is a longer term problem or longer term inflection." Are, is the dollar system rolling over out of inflation into euro dollar number five, if it is actually euro dollar number five? Are we seeing the beginning processes of the beginning stages of it? Because that's what really the Fedwire would the Fedwire event would work into. It's not an event by itself. It's another accumulated problem that becomes one problem too many that causes the, the global banking system, which is the backbone of the monetary system, to tuck its tail between its leg, take risk off the table a little bit at a time, which causes this monetary constraint and eventually a, more, a growing more acute dollar shortage. So whether or not we're there, you can't say for sure. I mean, we can't tell right now, but there are enough, enough things happening, enough trends changing, enough curves bending, enough lines moving in different directions in a whole variety of places that we have our suspicions being raised. And again, they all go back to around February 24th, 25th, which has a specific 
specific trigger that we've been talking about. So from this point forward, we got to pay attention to this and keep that February 24th Fedwire thing in mind to see if that's what really ends up happening. We will be every week on YouTube, on the podcast, and daily with your writings at Alhambra Investments. So thank you very much, Jeff. I enjoyed the show. I'll talk to you again next week. Okay, take care, Emil.